0: Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, If you don't, you can grab a Pew Bible uh, from the seat in front of you. You can find Romans 6 on page 887 in your Pew Bible if you're using one of those. Or you can track along in the the sermon or on the the slides. So, uh, today's uh, passage is kind of building, it's an extension of, and it's building on uh, what we heard from uh, last week with Paul. So, who remembers what we, uh, what, we, what we read and what we heard from last week? What was the question that Paul was seeking to, to answer last week in Romans 6, 1 through 14? Yeah, shall we sin more uh, so that grace may, may abound, right? Now, now that we're Christians, now that we've been saved by grace, uh, why shouldn't we uh, go ahead and sin all the more since God's going to forgive us uh, anyway, right? If, if, if the message that Paul has been preaching in Romans 1-5, through 5, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we are justified freely by God's grace, right? If, if this message of, of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus who, um, you know, was sacrificed in our place to satisfy the wrath of God so that we could be saved. If that's all true, then why not sin all the more... The more we sin, the more God forgives us. The more God forgives us, the more... the more gracious and forgiving of a God he is. So it's win-win, right? You know, in the the kind of the the theological nerd circles that I run in and books that I read, uh, this is a, a, it's called antinomianism. Big word, uh, but it's easy if you break it down. So anti is uh, opposed or, you know, against, and nomian or namas means law. So an antinomian is someone who is opposed to or against the, the law, right? Someone who is kind of anti law, anti authority, believes that we can and should do whatever we want whenever we want. And so Paul is addressing the, the, the objection from an antinomian in last week's text and, and this week's uh, text. And so last week, his answer to that question why shouldn't we sin all the more so that grace may abound had to do with Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Jesus died on the cross and he was raised up from the grave in newness of life. And we have been united with Jesus in his death on the cross, been forgiven of our sins, and also in his resurrection from the dead. And so we, if we have really been united with Jesus in his death and have really experienced forgiveness of sin, then we also are going to be united with him in his resurrection. We are also going to uh, experience, we're going to have a new life as Christians where we love God and hate sin. Instead of how we used to be, where we loved sin and hated God, so that was so he started kind of uh, you know speaking in theological terms about the atonement and the resurrection and how the Christian is involved, or it participates in them and is identified with them. That was that was the first fourteen verses. These next uh, eight verses, verses fifteen to twenty-three, uh, Paul talks about uh, slavery. Slavery to sin versus slavery to righteousness, and how those two phenomena manifest themselves in our uh, lives as, as believers. So, two big points that we're going to hit on uh, in in Romans six fifteen to twenty three. The first, I guess, five verses or so, fifteen to nineteen, uh, is everyone worships something. Everyone worships something or someone. Everyone is a slave to something or to someone. That's kind of Paul's main point in the first four to five verses, and then six twenty to 30, twenty to twenty-three. Worshiping Jesus is better, right? It's it's better than worshiping and serving whatever other thing that you used to be worshiping or serving. So everyone worships something. Worshiping Jesus is better. That's kind of his big uh, the themes that he's going to drive home in this text this morning. So, let's read through Romans 6, verses 15 to 23, uh, and, then, and then get to work uh, examining them together. It says, What then? Are we to sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone uh, as obedient slaves, then you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to Righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves now of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Four, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to more justification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Those things end in death. But what, but now that you have been set free from sin, and you've become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the privilege to gather together and sit under it and and come under its authority. And God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We pray that you would use it to encourage our souls and to to strengthen us in our faith and to help us to respond rightly to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So, verse 15, uh, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Same question, just kind of different different wording as he asked back in, in verse 1, right? Uh, can we, should we then go on sinning in excess because of the gospel of, of grace? And his answer, uh, who remember, the, this answer is the same as what we heard uh, last week, right? By no means. Uh, you know, other translations say, God forbid, or or not by not by any not by any means, right? Absolutely not, right? It's it's the the, the Greek word means um, literally it does not exist, right? So like th- this this idea, this notion that a Christian uh, can or should or will uh, revert back to their former way of life because their salvation is secured by God, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. It's not even a it's not even a, a premise that I'm going to grant that it exists. It's 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 uh, It's not even a real thing. It's kind of what what this is like, condemning that notion in the strongest possible terms. And so again, whereas last week Paul went on to uh, kind of argue that that's not a viable option for a Christian through these theological categories of death and resurrection and our being united in them, this week he's going to talk about slavery, right? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The idea is, everyone is a slave to something. And you you are going to present yourself as an obedient slave to something or to someone, be it sin or righteousness. Right? The Bob Dylan song, right? Uh, you got to serve somebody, right? Maybe the devil, maybe the lord you're going to right? you a, rich man king, rock star like right? you're going to serve someone, and it may be the devil it may be the lord, but you're going to serve someone that Paul is saying everyone is going to serve someone right uh, and and that that serving that 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 you know idea of being a, a slave in service to something could could take the take any number of forms, but you know whatever that thing is that you're Desiring the most and longing for the most. The thing that is making the most demands on your time and your attention and your emotions and your affections and your your resources, right? When you look at your life, uh, you are effectively a slave in service to someone or something or some things, plural. And that's, right, slavery, right? If you chase after money more than anything else in your life, and you, you know, hoard it so that you can have security and self-sufficiency, and you spend it, you indulge in fancy things, and you're always looking for something better or some way to get more money, right? You're never generous with other people because you want to make sure that you have as much as you possibly can to spend on your, right? If your entire life is about the pursuit of money, and you can never get enough money, then you have become a slave to money. It has mastery over you. If, you're, if you are consumed by or obsessed with or constantly grasping for power, you want to have power and leverage over people, you want to dominate them, you don't want to ever be in a position where someone else has power or authority over you, then you've become a slave to, to power, right? Comforts, pleasures, if I get those things, then I'll be happy. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'll stop at nothing to get that thing because that'll make my my life worth living. That's your that's your master, and you are its slave. You become an obedient slave to that thing that you are obeying. And it's not even just you know. It's not just right. It's not just material things, right? I want to be more attractive. I want to be more successful. I want people to like me. I want people to respect me. I want my life and my family to conform to that perfectly, you know idealistic vision that I have of what we should look like and, and what we want other people to think that we are like. right? So we spend all of our time trying to accentuate and exaggerate our strengths and trying to minimize or hide our weaknesses. So that other people will think that we're, you know, better than we are. God forbid anyone else realize that I'm not as smart or as powerful or as, as successful or as strong or as put together as I want them to think that I, that I am, right? God forbid that someone would realize that I'm, a, I'm an imperfect person who's made mistakes. Can't let anyone see that. I have to hide it and and constantly be pretending that I'm better than I really am. Right? That's just slavery. You've become enslaved to this to this idea of having other people's approval and and respect. What uh, has anyone seen the movie Frozen? Show of hands, right? Kid, what kids like the movie Frozen? No, it's, it's like I think it's the wrong wrong demo. Right? They're all in children's church. So, the movie Frozen, what's, what's, the, what's the movie about? There's, the, there's Anna, wait, what's the, what's the ice queen? Elsa. So there's Elsa, she lives in the castle, and she, like, shoots ice out of her hands, but, like, can't control, and so, like, her parents are, like, embarrassed by it, so they're like, don't let anyone see you shoot ice out of your hands. And then what do, what do they tell her? What's the little thing that they tell her to make her say when she's grown up so she doesn't do it, and hurt someone or embarrass herself? Conceal don't feel, don't let them know, right? So like her whole thing growing up is like, you have this thing about you. We don't want anyone to know that it's there. We don't want anyone, we don't want anyone to think, you know, that we don't want anyone to see the truth about you. So conceal it. Don't feel it. Pretend like it's not really happening. Don't let anyone know that this is, you know, that this is who you really are, which is kind of a representation of the slavery of, works righteousness, right? You have to be perfect. You have to make sure that everyone thinks that you're perfect. If you've sinned and made a mistake, don't let anyone know. Conceal it. Don't, you know, make sure that, that no one knows that you are an imperfect person. Maybe, if you're lucky, you can trick everyone into thinking that you're more righteous than you really are. Maybe you can trick God into thinking that you're more righteous than you really are. That's slavery. That's slavery. In Galatians 10, Paul says, Am I trying to win the approval of other people? Or am I trying to win the approval of God? If I was trying to please other people, then I would not be a servant of Christ. I'd, I'd be a servant. I'd be a slave of their approval. And you might say, well, that you know, That's not me, Ben. I'm I'm not a slave, right? I'm a a child of the twenty four I'm not a a slave to other people's approval, right? I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I have you know, I've been liberated from all that to follow my heart and to, to live my truth and to do whatever I think is right. Well, you're not the first person to think of that. In fact, that's what the girl in the Fro- in the Frozen does, right? She goes from saying conceal, don't feel, don't let them know, to what? What's the song? To let it let it go, right? L- right. I- I've had I've had it with this. I can't keep you know living this life of people pleasing anymore. I can't keep performing and pretending and acting like I'm something. I got to be true to myself and authentic to myself. So she runs away into the woods, right, and shoots a ice castle all around her. I'm going to be free, free from the chains of all this oppression from other people's expectations. I'm going to let it, it's like her big moment in the movie, I'm going to let it go. She literally says in it, I watched it this week, she literally says in it, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, because I'm free. I'm going to let it go and just be who I want to be and do what I feel is right in my heart. That's antinomianism, right? Right? So 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 there's there's the slavery of being being enslaved by and obligated to other people's expectations and 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 their approval that's slavery but what the world would tell you then is okay well the op, then the freedom from that is antinomianism do whatever you want live your truth right break free from the shackles of what society's telling you to do follow your heart live Be be who your inner voice is telling you to be. As if that is freedom. Friends, I can tell you from Paul's words in Romans 6, and from from personal experiences, I think that we all can, that that is not freedom either. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm going to do whatever I want, is not freedom. That is freedom. Another form of slavery. That's, that's just like the slavery of works, righteousness, just in a slightly different disguise. Ask the ask the person who does whatever they want with their life, indulges in every single desire that they can that they can think of. Ask them if, if their life is true freedom. or if it's leaving them feeling profoundly empty, much like the emptiness that's felt by a slave who works himself to death to make his slave owner rich. Right? Self exp- right? Self-ism, self-expression, this antinomian idea is not freedom, it's just another... It's, it's another form of slavery. Ask, ask an alcoholic if they are truly experiencing right? They're addicted, they can't they, they can't go to sleep unless they drink until they black out can't hold a job because they're hung over every morning. Ask them if that's freedom or if that is slavery or, a you know, a person addicted to inappropriate content and they can't stop looking at it no matter how much they try and their relationships suffer because of it ask them if that's freedom or if that's slavery ask a drug addict whose life is in shambles if they're experiencing freedom or if they're experiencing slavery the, the world is going to tell you that you've got this binary choice between the slavery of conforming to what society tells you to do and, and living to please other people, conceal, don't feel don't let them know or there's the freedom of be real, be authentic, right? No right, no wrong, no rules. But that binary choice that the world is going to tell you is a lie. Because being real and being authentic and following your heart is, a, is just a different form of slavery. Just like being enslaved to other people's approval. And both of them, right? Being enslaved to other people's expectations and being enslaved to yourself and your desires, both of those slave masters are cruel. Right? Both of the both of those slave masters will do what every idol does, which is they will take everything from you. The the nature of an idol Every idol across the board has the same playbook, which is that they start out asking very little from you and, and then promising the world to you and then slowly over time, subtly without you even noticing it, they start to demand more and more from you and they start to offer very they start to offer less and less to you in return until until you are, when it's run its entire course, you are completely at their whim, you are completely subservient to them, you have given your life completely to them, and you are receiving nothing back from them. That's how idols work, right? If you, if you worship at the altar of approval from others, then the more you get it, the more desperate you'll be for it right? And then the more you get it, the less satisfied you will be with the approval that you have, and the more that you'll need more of it, and the more devastated you'll be when people don't think as highly of you as you want them to. If you seek pleasure in self-indulgence, excess, drugs, whatever it is, right? The more you get, the more desperate you become for it. Each time you get it, it will satisfy you less and less until eventually it gives you no pleasure at all and you've become entirely enslaved to it. Whatever the idol is, it's not go- going to set you free. It's going to enslave you. It will promise. It'll, it'll, it'll promise you that it will set you free, but it will. Idols are slave traders disguised as abolitionists, right? I will set you free. I will give you life. Follow me. Pursue me. Right, and you will have freedom—the freedom that you want and that you crave—and then they enslave you. And Paul says, "We're all going to be enslaved to something." And you might say, "That's man, what a downer!" Like I came—I came to church, Ben, to be encouraged, and this is depressing. There's a lot of preachers that only ever say things that are happy and positive and uplifting. I'm not one of them. There's a lot of superficial preaching that, that I would argue doesn't actually prepare you for real life, prepare you for the suffering that is inherent to this this life. Plus, that kind of superficial preaching, I don't think, tracks with what we read in Scripture, which has some texts that are happy and some texts that are sad and some texts that are encouraging and some texts that are that are hard to hear. So, yeah, admittedly. It's not, right? Like, this idea that like we are all enslaved to someone or something is admittedly not the most positive message that we could hear. It's a little depressing. It's even more compressing, more depressing to, to consider that this is the inevitable unavoidable reality for every single human being every person who is in Adam this is their experience this is who they, they are so that's, that, that, that it's it's true that this is an unavoidable reality but it's not true that this is the current present reality for you if you are in Christ, right? Every person who is in Adam experiences this kind of slavery to sin, but everyone who is in Christ has been set free, verse 18, from this slavery to sin, and they've been given a new master. They are now, uh, they, they were obedient, they were slaves to sin, but now they have been set free, They're, they've become slaves to, to righteousness, right? So Paul says, don't get me wrong. You were slaves to sin, to be sure. You were slaves to other people's approval. You were slaves to your own sinful desires and passions. You were slaves to to idols in your life. But now you have become slave. You have a new master. You've become slaves to righteousness instead of sin. This new master doesn't leave you empty and unsatisfied like those idols did. And the your the 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 subservience that the service that you give to this new master is different and better than the service that you gave to those old masters because this new master that you serve is through obedience from the heart. So, so when you serve idols in the world, it's often begrudgingly, it's often with an ulterior motive, it's often, you know, I, don't, I would rather not be doing this but I have to so that I can get the thing that that idol is promising. But when you worship and serve God, then that's an obedience that comes from the from the heart, right? A deep heart level obedience where you worship God because God or where you serve God because God has given you new regenerated desires that you want to to serve him. So, everyone serves something. God in his mercy saves his people from slavery to and subservience to idols so that they can become servants of slaves of God and of righteousness. And then Paul puts this little kind of fine print, right? This little kind of terms and conditions verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, meaning like don't don't push the illustration further than it, you know, than it was intended to to go, right? Paul's kind of envisioning his reader thinking, "Oh, I guess like you're saying God is a slave like you're saying Christianity is slavery, and, and God is a slave master, right? That sounds, right, that sounds bad to me. And so Paul's saying, it's just an illustration, like, your finite minds can't fully comprehend the full extent of who God is and your how your relationship with God actually works. In the same way that my one-year-old can't quite, he doesn't know his brain hasn't developed enough to understand who I am as his father, and how his relationship with me actually works. And so Paul says, you can't comprehend your relationship with God, so I have to give it to you in these illustrations, and these illustrations are inherently sometimes limited. So, when I say that you're a slave to righteousness and a slave to God, don't import all of the baggage that, that you associate with slavery, and then and then kind of attribute all of that to God, right? Don't Don't leave this passage thinking that God is a slave driver who's cruel or abusive or overbearing, right? I'm using the slavery illustration to communicate to you how, you know, we as, as followers of Jesus have changed teams. We've changed loyalties. We used to be on team sin and team self, serving sin and self. Now we're on team Jesus, right? Serving Christ Right? Worshiping Jesus, obeying Jesus. So that's kind of the, the point the illustration is not that God is a a cruel slave driver. The illustration is that the point of the illustration is that we used to serve sin and self, now we serve God in in Christ. And he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to more sanctification, right? So, it's, it's just as so now, right? It's, it's an analogy. Just as this thing happened, so now this other thing should happen, and they should be, they should be parallel. The one should, you know, like, the, the template for how we worship and serve and obey God should be based on, or, or in some way analogous to how we used to worship and serve and obey ourselves and our own selfish desires, right? The same devotion that you used to have for sin and self and all of the things that you that your self desired you should have that same devotion if not more so now to, to God just as you once gave yourself to sin so now give yourself to Christ which is a little convicting right if you think about the level of devotion or the level of excitement or the level of commitment that you had to other things or maybe even that you have to you know sports news politics entertainment right whatever the thing is that you're that you're into Paul is saying if you are or were more devoted to that thing than you are devoted to Jesus and following Jesus in the context of your church family then that is A problem. That is an occasion to repent and and, and change. If your devotion was or is greater to something else than it is to God and to the, the family of God. Here's something else that's interesting about verse 19. For just as you once presented yourselves as members to slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness. So now, presenting your members' of righteousness, which leads to sin. So, it's almost like they have the, the, the idea is that lawlessness and sin on the one hand, or righteousness and godliness on the other hand, they kind of have it. Their self like propelling machines. They they moment. It's a snowball effect. Momentum builds with each, whichever one of those you are cultivating and whichever one of those you are investing in in your life. It has a snowball effect to it. Sin. Uh, begets sin and righteousness begets righteousness. Sometimes we tend to think of sin and desire and, and gratification as some sort of like you know like a zero-sum game. Like if I have a desire at, for, for sin and then I satiate that desire then I won't have it anymore and I can just move on with life and it's I'll get it out of my, my system. If I if I have a temptation to be angry and if I just indulge in anger or revenge or jealousy or resentment, then I'll just I'll get it off my chest and I can move on with my life and I won't have that sin hanging over my head anymore. It's not how sin works. When you indulge in sin, the desire for that sin does not become weaker. It becomes stronger. Right? Sin is not like, I'm thirsty, I'm going to drink water, I won't be thirsty anymore. It's like, I'm thirsty, so I'll drink salt water, and then I'm even more thirsty than I was before I drank it. Right? When you sin, you don't get it out of your system. You get it into, it like gets deeper and more entrenched into your system. So the more you indulge in sin, repentance and, and victory over that sin doesn't become easier. It becomes more difficult. Well, there this one, was this one TV show a while ago that there's these two overweight guys. They're talking about how they need to get in shape. They're lamenting about how lazy they are and how embarrassing their lives are. And they resolve together, okay, tomorrow we're going to go to the gym. We're going to get in shape. We're going to cardio, lift weights, the whole deal. We're going to do it every day. We're going to be a new person starting tomorrow morning. And then one of them's like, well, look, since, since we're going to start this radical diet tomorrow... Radical workout program. Like, since we're going to have six-pack abs in 30 days, we should probably today, it only makes sense that we should just today, right now, have one final kind of, let's go to the buffet and the extravaganza meal just to say goodbye. Just to say goodbye to this old way of life that we had since tomorrow is a brand new day with a brand new life. And so they go to the buffet, they eat so much food, disgusting amount of food until they almost pass out they're like staggering out of this buffet right and then one says to the other hey alright so what time do you want to go to the gym tomorrow and then he's like eh, actually I'm pretty busy I don't know if I'm gonna I don't know, maybe, maybe some other time well, and they walk away they never go to the gym together right? Like so this, this last hurrah of eating didn't make it more likely that they were going to start working out it, it made it more likely that they were going to give up entirely on the idea of working out the idea of indulging in sin for the purpose of, let me just get this out of my system so that I can move forward with my life without it, is not how it works. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. But the, good, the beautiful thing is, so does righteousness, right? Righteousness also leads to sanctification, i.e. more Righteousness. So, so in the same way that as you indulge in sin, sin becomes easier and and more difficult to have victory over. As you uh, invest in and cultivate righteousness in your life, then righteousness has a snowball effect and a momentum building nature to it. Right, which is why it's you know, it's it's easier to. Whatever good habit you're trying to cultivate, it's easier to do it on the 30th day after you've done it 29 days in a row than it is to do it on day one when you've never done it before in your life. You build momentum, you create habits, and you kind of build on it. So if you're discouraged that sin seems to come so easily in your life and that repentance and righteousness are difficult to establish in your life, then verse 19 is good news because it's telling you that it gets easier over over time as you invest in and cultivate righteousness in your life it gets easier because you start to build momentum righteousness leads to sanctification so that's point 1 right point 1 paul saying everyone is a slave to something be it righteousness or sin heaven hell right With the approval of others, self, everyone is a slave to something. Whatever it is that you are presenting yourself to as an obedient slave, you're a slave to that, to that thing. There's something that you love and serve and chase after. Everyone is a slave to something. And point two in verse 20 and following is that worshiping Jesus is better than worshiping that other thing. Being enslaved to, as it were, being enslaved to Jesus is better than being enslaved to that other thing. Verse 20, he says, For when when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So here it's almost Paul's actually kind of giving a, a brief concession here, right? He's saying, Okay, I'll grant you that there was a measure of freedom that you did experience in your former way of life, right? no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Yeah, like there's a measure of freedom that you had in that moment, right? An element of freedom. You didn't have to go to church, right? You didn't have to put the needs of other people before the needs of yourself. You didn't have to practice self-control or self-denial. So there was an element of freedom. But the catch is that freedom from righteousness that you were experiencing wasn't true freedom. It was slavery to sin that was masquerading itself as freedom from righteousness. Look what he says about it. Verse 21, look what he says about that fake freedom that you had when you were experiencing slavery to sin. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. So even if you understand yourself to have had some measure of freedom before when you were enslaved to sin what was the value of it you hated it you you hate now that you were that like you look back on your the, the time of your life when you were enslaved to sin and you're you hate it you are ashamed of it you wish that you weren't there like if you could go back then knowing what you know now then you would not Give yourself to sin the way that you did then because all it brought was suffering and and pain. You ever ran into an old buddy from when you were a kid, high school, college, whatever, and hear them tell stories about you and the person you were decades ago? Not, it's not pleasant. Hey, remember when we, whatever, right? Whatever stupid thing that you... You know, maybe did right back when you were a different person before your lives kind of went these dramatically different ways. And you're like, please don't tell that story anymore. Please don't. If you do, please don't use my name in it. There's, um, I'm a fan of the show Seinfeld. There's an episode where uh, Kramer needs new glasses, and he's you know, and and uh, no wait, George needs new glasses. Kramer says, okay, we'll go to this guy and uh, mention my name, and he'll give you 30% off of your glasses. And so George goes in, and he picks out his glasses, and he goes up to the optometrist, and he just goes, Kramer. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? He's like, Kramer. I'm like, yeah, what about him? He's like, I was told if, you, if I mentioned Kramer's name, you'd give me a discount. And he goes, no, there's no discount for anyone who mentions Kramer's name. So George goes back to Kramer and says, hey, I didn't get the discount. And Kramer's like, that's it. No way. That's, this is, I can't believe he's not. So he goes into the optometrist's office, and the guy's in there and Kramer goes up to him and he takes a candy bar out of his pocket and he puts it right up in his face. And the guy's kind of like a little bit like, and he goes, oh, he goes, oh, how quickly we forget, right? Six months ago, you were eating four of these for breakfast every morning and you were washing them down with donuts, right? I had to go to the donut shop and, uh, you know, they had cut you off. They stopped serving you at the donut shop, like at a bar, right? They, they had cut you off. And he says, if, he says, you wouldn't have any teeth anymore if it wasn't for me taking you to the fruit stand and stuffing cantaloupe down your throat. And by, like, So it's like this whole silly monologue, but by the end of it, the guy's like crying. Right? He's like crying because he's like, no, please take the, put the candy bar away. And he's like, I don't want to think about that person. I'm ashamed of the person that I was, and I don't want you to mention it. I don't want you to be confronted by the person that I that I was. He hates his former way of life and he doesn't want to hear about it, let alone go back to it. And Paul's saying that is how the Christian should see and think of their former way of life before they knew Christ. When they were a slave to sin and to their selfish desires, right? It's shameful, it's embarrassing, they don't want to hear about it. And so Paul is saying, if that's the way that you feel about your former... You you recognize now that it was leading to death and self-destruction, and you're ashamed of it, why would you ask voluntarily to go back to it? Why would you say, I want to go back to that former way of life where I could indulge in sin, now that you recognize that you were actually in slavery to sin, and it was going to kill you? Why would someone who knows Jesus look back at their former way of life and say, yeah, I, right, jealousy, resentment, self-gratification, right, hostility, pride, entitlement, despair, lonely, right? I mean, if I could only go back to that, if that's what I really want. Paul is saying, a Christian wouldn't say that. A Christian wouldn't think that. Christians who love Jesus are ashamed of their former way of life, and and rightly so. Those things end in death. Verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God, and the fruit of that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Meaning, just because you used to be a different person than you are now and just because you you're ashamed of the person that you used to be that's not who you are anymore you're a different if if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has gone the new has come you've been set free from slavery to sin and you've been given a new master and whereas your former way of life was on a trajectory that was going to end in self-destruction and death and hell, this new way of life, this new master that you have, is on a trajectory that will end in life. Righteousness, sanctification, and eternal life. They're, They're two completely opposite trajectories. Sometimes when we think about eternity and heaven and hell, we Maybe we, you know, we kind of see maybe this like stark break in between, right? There's this life, and then there's eternity. And it's like they're totally disconnected, and they're separate from one another. There's this life, and then there's the, the next life. And Paul Paul's vision of this life and the next life is that it literally just like, merges into it. It, It's a seamless transition from this life into whatever you've been sowing in this life and cultivating in this life. It just is, it seamlessly moves into eternal life. You walk with Jesus as part of his family. You grow in holiness. Over time, you start to look more and more like Jesus. And eventually, you You die, and the the path of sanctification that you have been walking on just leads directly and seamlessly into eternal life when you are in the presence of Jesus. It's It's a seamless next step. It's kind of how Paul envisions the typical Christian life. It seamlessly transitions from who you are and what you've been doing in this life into the next life. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. Right? There are... People get converted on their deathbed, right? The the thief on the cross next to Jesus is converted in the last moment, right? The the parable of, you know, in the 11th hour, people are brought in, even though there's very little time left. And so there are exceptions. Those people exist. But that, according to Paul, that's not the ideal that we should be striving for. That you live for yourself, live for the world... Maximize the amount of sin and worldly pleasure that you can that you can take in, and then at the very last moment, through this catastrophic event, this violent whiplash inducing one eighty, you turn to God, and your eternity looks vastly different than your life here in this world looked paul 's vision for the Christian life is not that rather it is you trust in Jesus and then slowly over time, you grow to look more and more like him, and your You experience more and more intimacy with him. Your life here in this world starts to look more and more like your existence will look in heaven as you grow closer to to Jesus and then you die and, and eternity is simply the next step, the next seamless transition in that process. Righteousness leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. if you're living a life that's trending away from God, if you find that you're loving God less and less, obeying God less and less, you are less and less committed to the people of God, if that's how your life is looking, Paul is saying then you should not presume that your life that's trending away from God is going to somehow magically culminate in the presence of God just because you made a decision or prayed some prayer when you were a kid. Your, your assurance as a Christian doesn't come from some decision that you made long ago. It comes from your life right now at the present being on a trajectory where you love God and hate sin and you are trending toward him in a way that will culminate in eternal life. if you're trending away from God don't presume that there's going to be this radical change that happens to you unexpectedly sometime in the future. If you're trending away from God then repent and fight against it and turn to God so that you can start trending back toward him. Verse 23 For the, the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is just the kind of putting a bow on this section, on this chapter, with a very clear, unambiguous presentation of the gospel, right? You have sinned against God, you have worshipped other things instead of God you've, you've worshipped yourself and, and the approval of others, you've been enslaved and dominated by those things and, and those things end in death the wages of those things is death and the result is, is judgment and wrath and hell but the free gift of God is eternal life in, right, so, so Jesus did not leave you in your former way of life continuing to give yourself to those things, being enslaved by those things, Jesus came to you to purchase your salvation and give it to you as a free gift. He left his throne in heaven. He came here as a human being. He lived a perfectly righteous life, the one that God called you to live but you failed to do. And then at the end of his perfectly righteous life, Jesus died a sacrificial death as a substitute in your place. He died the death that you deserved. He was treated as if he was guilty of the sins that you committed so that you could be treated as if you have lived the perfect life of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness of Jesus, that salvation that he purchased, is given to us freely, not as the result of merit, not as the result of, we don't have to work for it or pay for it, we receive it freely by turning away from our sin and trusting in Jesus, trusting in the sufficiency of who he is and what he has done for us. Everyone worships something. Worshiping Jesus is better. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the free gift of salvation through Christ. We thank you that you have saved us and freed us from the slavery that we were in. We thank you that you redeemed us out of that slavery that was leading us to death and you gave us a new master and a new family and new life, eternal life. Lord, help us to see with Paul that that wanting to go back to that former way of life is absurd, and instead help us to desire and long for life with you under your rule, where we trust you and obey you and walk with you until we see you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.